0: Hello and welcome to the Heredity Podcast with me, Dr. James Bergen. Well, sort of. Things are a bit different today, as you may have realised if you've noticed the runtime of today's episode. You see, on the 20th of July, the Genetic Society held a fantastic garden party to celebrate the 200th birthday of Gregor Mendel, a man many regard as the father of modern genetics. This included a series of fantastic talks, all of which can be found on the Genetic Society's YouTube channel, which we'll link in the episode description. The first of these talks titled Mendel to Modern Genetics, was given by the incredible Professor Alison Willard. And it was so good that today we're going to bring it to you in its entirety. I hope you like it as much as I did. And to introduce both the event and Professor Willard, here's current GenSoc President Professor Anne Ferguson-Smith. Enjoy, and I'll see you again next month, as we bring you more incredible science straight from the pages of Heredity.
1: Can everybody hear me? Yes, good. Hello. Hello. Very, very, very warm welcome to everybody who's managed to make it here today. Um, It's it's fantastic to be here in person for the Genetic Society's (coughs) Summer Garden Party and celebration, so thanks for coming. Uh, I know that there are lots of people uh, online, Uh, this is being streamed, Um, and you can follow us on Twitter at hashtag Mendel200GenSOC. So today's special, because it's the 200th birthday today of Gregor Mendel, that polymath monk from Bruneau, um, whose work on the inheritance of phenotype um, has given rise to the discipline of genetics. am not going to give a lecture on Mendelian laws of inheritance, we're going to hear more about Mendel uh, later in a minute, um, but I want to um, acknowledge his remarkable work, and to remind you that the, our, our journal Heredity has this month published a set of articles focusing on exceptions to the Mendelian laws of inheritance that I'd encourage you to have a read of. So um, I'm going to introduce our first speaker and our first speaker is uh, Alison Woolard. Alison uh, has recently finished her term as a a much valued member of the Genetic Society Committee as Officer for, for Public Engagement of Genetics. She is renowned for her Uh, public communication of science uh, uh, but her day job is associate professor of biochemistry at Oxford uh, where she's a developmental and cellular genetics geneticist. Alison gave the uh, Royal Institution Christmas Lectures in 2013 and today she's going to initiate our special day uh, with a presentation entitled Mendel to Modern Day Genetics. Over to you Alison.
2: So thank you very much, Pam. Um, And I'd just like to thank the Genetic Society for the opportunity and the honour of talking about Mendel at this 200th anniversary celebration that's been put together by the Society. So the first thing I want to say is that I'm a practising geneticist and I'm not a historian of genetic science. So in what I'm going to tell you today, I've borrowed heavily from the prevailing literature Um, especially the wonderful work of Daniel Fairbanks at Utah Valley University. And I think Daniel's probably speaking today um, at the celebration in Bruneau. So, um, uh, you know, his his work is really some of the most detailed historical record about Mendel and his impact. Um, And in fact, so much has been written about Mendel and his work that actually I feel a bit of a fraud trying to bring it all together for you here And so I need you to forgive me the odd inaccuracy, naivety, or other defects um, in this talk. So um, I want to start with Darwin, really, and talk about the problem with Darwin's great idea. So Darwin's idea, of course, was that variation among creatures in their natural environment results in the struggle for life, and only the most suitably adapted are preserved. But Darwin had no mechanism to explain inheritance, and this rendered his logic incomplete. His unifying theory failed in this respect. So Darwin knew that that traits run in families, otherwise natural selection wouldn't work at all, but he had no decent mechanism to explain how inheritance work works, despite recognising the supreme importance of heredity because of his modification by descent hypothesis. But his work, Darwin's work didn't lead to any new way of solving the central mystery of life, so how organisms reproduce and pass down characteristics. In other words, um, the famous saying, nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of evolution, I think has an addendum, which is, nothing in evolution makes sense except in the light of genetics. So what were the prevailing theories of heredity in Darwin's day? I'm going to start with the earliest known writings on this subject, and that's Hippocrates in 400 BC. So Hippocrates believed that reproductive material came from all parts of an organism and hence that characteristics were directly handed down to the progeny. And as evidence in support of this, he referred to an ancient tribe of mankind called the macrocephaly. And you can see in this um, skull here, immediately after a child was born, the macrocephaly fashioned its head um, by hand to give it an elongated shape. And then at a later period, um, the idea became um, accepted that the elongated head would form naturally without the necessity for moulding it after birth, in much the same way that baldness and blue eyes are inherited. So if reproductive material came from all parts of an organism, then it would come from the moulded head. That was the idea at the time. And then 50 years or so later than Hippocrates, Aristotle questioned this view. So Aristotle couldn't understand how certain characteristics, such as voice and nails and hair, could contribute to the reproductive material, because they seem intangible, or concerned dead tissue. And he also observed that children often resembled their grandparents more um, than their parents. And Aristotle was puzzled about plants. So how could parts which may be absent at the time of reproduction, like leaves, for example, be inherited? And how could it be that parents could each contribute something from all of their parts, and yet the progeny have only one and not two of everything? So Aristotle modelled Hippocrates' theory by postulating that the reproductive material is made up of substances that have been diverted from various parts to the reproductive part. And that was a really important idea, because it, it, gave, it paved the way for people to talk about the germline as being something separate. So Aristotle then went on to argue that the contributions to the progeny from two parents were not the same, and he held the contribution of the father in somewhat higher regard, No surprises there. He thought that the contribution of the father contributed shape and form to the embryo and that the mother's contribution was the inner material. In other words, all the boring stuff. Many variants of these transmission theories uh, were proposed over the subsequent centuries. And the only theory of heredity that's perhaps rivaled it is the so-called preformation theory that can be followed back to St. Augustine. And this theory held that in the creation of the first woman, all following generations were preformed, and the theory gave rise to the idea of the homunculus in the 16th century. Although Nicholas Hartziker, who drew this homunculus in 1695, was definitely a spermist in his view of heredity. But it was really the transmission theories that dominated during Darwin's time. And so Darwin, writing in 1868, um, in his paper, Animals, The Variation of Animals and Plants Under Domestication. Um, and he wrote about his theory of pangenesis in this paper. And he suggested that all the cells and tissues of an organism threw off minute granules called gemules, and they circulated through the organism, they multiplied, and they were passed down to the reproductive cells, which thus contained a multitude of components thrown off um, from each individual part of the organism. He also thought that the gemmules must be capable of transmission in a dormant state to future generations. And he felt that pangenesis, which he described as a provisional hypothesis in this 1868 work, brought together nine years after the origin of species, in his words, a multitude of facts which are at present left disconnected by any cause. But actually, his theory was not so very different from that of Hippocrates over 2,000 years previously. It's remarkable that the Hippocratic view remained essentially unchallenged for 23 centuries. It's not as though no one did any breeding experiments during this time, especially in the 18th and 19th centuries. It's more the case that although these experiments did not support the classical view, they didn't present any alternative hypotheses. So it's no, we're, now we fast forwarded. Well, we fast forwarded from the ancients. Um, to several decades before Mendel published his work. And there are at least two other plant breeders who made very similar observations to Mendel. So the first is Thomas Andrew Knight, shown here, who lived from 1759 to 1838. He had an FRS. He hailed from Downton Castle in Herefordshire. And he was the second president of the Royal Horticultural Society. So that's one of the many links to the Royal Horticultural Society that we find we need to think about today. And Knight performed extensive breeding experiments on strawberries and cabbages and peas in his extensive curvilinear greenhouse. Um, So in in 1799, Goss did the experiment of crossing unpigmented and pigmented edible peas together. He did this experiment. And he was surprised to find only pigmented plants the following year in the F1 generation. And when he um, allowed these to self, they produce both pigmented and unpigmented plants in the the following generation. So from this, Knight deduced that there was a stronger tendency to produce coloured than colourless plants, and he left it at that. And then um, there was John Goss, who was also working in England, and in 1824 made some similar discoveries. I couldn't find pictures of Goss easily online, Um, He was not aristocracy. He hailed from Devon. He was a lad who cleaned boots and did other odd jobs at the the rectory in Idsley. And there, the rector noticed his obvious intelligence and his inventive skills, and he helped to educate him. And John Goss um, was a bit of an inventor. Uh, he, He made a very early calculating machine, and he also made an orrery, which is a model of the solar system as a way of trying to engage his villagers, his in wanting to understand more about the world around them. But John Goss had a very lucky break when he um, helped a lady who had fallen out of a carriage near to where he lived, and that lady was, was of aristocracy, Lady Harrington, and um, they fell in love. He helped her up from a fall, and he ended up marrying her. And this union enabled him to concentrate on plant breeding experiments because he didn't need to worry about money anymore. And he said this note to his um, experiments um, on yellow-green seeded varieties of pea. He called the green blue, but it's it's really the green phenotype that Mendel later worked on. And this, again, is a paper to the the RHS. It's called the Horticultural Society of London in those days. So his paper was called On the Variation in the Colour of Peas Occasioned by Cross Impregnation. so what Goss did was to... Um, to oh, I should say, his, his, um, his, his, his paper um, contains an, a very interesting prophetic sentence. Um, should this new variety of pea neither possess superior merit nor be deemed singular in its bicolored, bicolored produce, yet there is, I conceive, something in its history that will emit a ray of physiological light. So He, he had insight that these peas were kind of... Kind of cool, could tell us interesting things. And what he basically did was to take Knight's analysis a bit further. So he pollinated green-seeded plants from a yellow-seeded variety, found all yellow-seeded plants in the first generation, and then when he self-those, he got pods with all green, all yellow, or a mixture of both green and yellow seeds. um, seeded plants the following year. But then he went for a further generation, and he discovered that while the green peas bred true only giving green progeny, the yellow yielded a mixture, some pods all yellow, and some with both green and yellow peas intermixed. So these, these patterns had been observed, but the problem with both Knight and Goss, and others who were doing similar experiments at the same time, is that they didn't count the number of the two kinds of peas, or if they did count them, they failed to see the significance of those numbers. And in not doing so, they failed to discover the hereditary mechanism which Mendel found. So, 42 years later then, in 1866, Mendel had been doing similar experiments to those of Knight and Goss. But how and why did Mendel come to be doing this? So, in a nutshell, brief biography of um, Mendel. And this was recently reviewed in a really excellent article by Daniel Fairbanks in the special issue of heredity that... um, Anne mentioned. Mendel rose from impoverished childhood in a a small village called Heizendorf in what was Austrian Silesia, now the Czech Republic. He was the son of peasant farmers and he rose from this to become a successful teacher, scientist, priest and ultimately prelate and abbot. The, The evidence around Mendel's discoveries is unfortunately highly fragmentary because much of the original documentation was either lost or destroyed Um, probably because his fellow friars, when he died, just didn't realise that his work was particularly significant and they just thought it needed tidying up. And into this void has appeared various unfounded suppositions, including assertions that he never articulated the principles ascribed to him, that he opposed Darwin, and that he falsified data. And We'll come to some of this later. Um, He was baptised Johann um, Mendel, and he was the second of... Five children, not all of whom survived to adulthood. But his sister Theresia did leave, did live to see her brother Gregor. He was, took the name Gregor when he was ordained. Um, she did see him attain fame as the founder of genetics in the early 20th century. So Mendel went to, uh, very trigger happy, Mendel went to a boarding school for gifted children in Leipnik, and then he went to the Tropau Gymnasium and from there to the Olmutz Philosophical Institute, where he graduated in 1843 at the age of 21. He was very keen on physics, and as well as natural history, and he shined in both, and it was his physics professor who recommended him for admission to the Augustinian Order in the St. Thomas's Monastery in Brun, now called Bruneau, um, that we can see here. And it's really important that that Mendel was a friar and not a monk because the friars openly served the community as teachers um, and so on. The St. Thomas's friars were really unusual as well in that they were highly educated with several dedicated to secular academic teaching and research. So this is a really important part of the milieu um, to which um, Mendel became part of. The abbot, Cyril Knapp, was a highly respected scholar committed to implementing scientific advances in agriculture and he really encouraged Mendel in this area. So that gives you quite a lot of the background of the why Mendel was thinking about these particular problems. Several openings came up for parish priests um, during this time but Mendel showed himself to be really unsuitable for them. He was terrified of talking to people who were sick, for example. And so Knapp recommended him for a teaching position at the, at the Zname gymnasium southwest of Brunn, And he was a brilliant teacher. But he fell foul of new rules about qualifications for teachers and had an absolute nightmare trying to pass exams in physics and natural history in Vienna. And he, he, he made several attempts at these exams, as we shall see. By the time his exam reports were received by the monastery the first time around, though, Knapp, um, the abbot, had already sent Mendel off to study at the University of Vienna in preparation for a teaching career. And This was another really important part of Mendel's development as a scientist because he studied under Franz Unger. and Unger was a botanist and paleontologist who, in 1851, so eight years before Darwin published his work, Unger had a concept of evolution remarkably like Darwin's, um, even though that work was eight years from publication. So Mendel wrote various papers while he was working under Unger. He, for example, wrote um, some very big compilations of meteorolo- meteorological data, he very keen on data. Um, he also worked on Lepidopteran predation in radishes, and he worked on pea weevils and how they infest pea seeds. Um, He returned to Bruneau in 1853 and um, just in time for it to be investigated for secularism and lack of religious piety um, in a commission set up by the then Pope Pius IX. And the upshot was that the investigation concluded that the monastery should be dissolved. Luckily, this never happened. Well, there must have been a bit of a cloud for the intellectual friars to live under. And this cloud coincided with Mendel's earliest known pea experiments. He had another go at his teaching certification in 1885-1856, travelling back to Vienna for the written and oral exams, but he was taken ill during these exams, some sort of nervous attack, and abandoned them. So there's a story that Mendel failed the exams because he argued with Fenzel, who was another botanist, about... Whether inheritance in plants is biparental or um, paternal, but actually that's not true. That's a made-up story. He f- he he failed the exams because he was taken ill during them. But it is known that Unger, um, Mendel's supervisor, Unger and Fenzel argued about the nature of fertilization, and that Mendel was thinking about ways to test this, to test to try to uncover more about fertilization in his P experimental design, and he did some preliminary experiments in 1854 and 1855. I couldn't help putting a, a picture of Jonathan. Um, as Anne said, Jonathan is, an, is, a, is a sort of double of, of Mendel, and this is Jonathan um, being Mendel at the Society's um, exhibition at the um, Chelsea Flower Show in 2019, where we had um, an a, a, An installation, I guess, called the flowering of genetics, which was great fun to do. So rather than just show a load of old photos of Mendel, I thought it would be nice to put one of Jonathan in there as well. So apart from this interest in fertilisation then, another motivation for Mendel's experiments was that the origin of species was such a central question at that time, and the hybridization between variants was thought to have an important role in this. Sometimes hybrids bred true, and other times they didn't. And Mendel was very curious about this. And also he came from an agricultural area. He came from a farming family and a farming culture. And so for him, it probably wasn't just about the basic science. It was also about the application of that understanding to the real world, to the rural economy, for example. And I think it's fascinating that this interest and observation of variation in domestic plants is very similar to the observations that Darwin made about the variation in domestic animals. So they were both inspired by variation in the natural world, very much so. Mendel carried out his hybridization experiments over eight years, between 1856 and 1863, not least because he had time to, given that his, he had failed in his teacher accreditation. So this really was a case of those who can teach, those who can't research. He gave two lectures on his work in 1865, and this, this is an interesting year as well. I was talking to Kim Naismith on the stairs the other day, and Kim's written a really nice article about Mendel as well recently, and um, Kim pointed out to me that 1865, the year that Mendel um, first lectured on this work, was the very same year that James Clerk Maxwell published his paper on the dynamical theory of the electromagnetic field. And this is, of course, remarkable because Mendel founded genetics and Maxwell arguably founded the field of macromolecular structure determination. Um, and they're twin methodological pillars of modern bioscience. So that was a nice connection. So, Mendel's this is a page, one of the few um, pages from his notebook that's that, that, that we can see. His thoroughness in recording the minutiae of his data enabled Mendel by a stroke of genius to detect the underlying mechanism and so put forward an entirely new hypothesis for heredity. The grandeur in Mendel's work is easily obscured by seemingly uh, obscured facts and figures about pea breeding schemes, but on the contrary, the devil is absolutely in the detail. The grandeur is revealed by the seemingly mundane, and we do need to spend a a little bit of time on on these facts and figures for the next few minutes. So working with the pigmented and unpigmented peas, just like knights, Mendel also noted that pigmented plants in the F1 generation were the only ones he saw, and that on self-pollination, these plants yielded both pigmented and unpigmented varieties in the F2. But he counted them. He found 705 pigmented plants and 224 unpigmented plants among 929 plants. So he observed that these frequencies were close to three-quarters and one-quarter of the total. He called the pigmented character dominant and the unpigmented character recessive. In other words, he was saying that inheritance is particulate, it's not a case of blending parental characteristics like mixing paint. And importantly, the results were the same if the cross was done the other way around. In fact, one of Mendel's most important contributions is often overlooked, his definitive resolution of the Unger-Fenzel dispute. If you remember Unger, who was was Mendel's mentor in Vienna, and Fenzel, who was also a professor of botany, they argued about whether inheritance was biparental or paternal. Mendel concluded that one germ cell and one pollen cell unite into a single cell that is able to develop an independent organism through the uptake of matter and the formation of new cells. This development takes place according to a constant law that is founded in the material nature and arrangement of the elements. And to the term single cell in his paper, he attached the following footnote, which is worth looking at. With pisum, it's shown without doubt that there must be a complete union of the elements of both fertilizing cells for the formation of the new embryo. How could one otherwise explain that among the progeny of hybrids, both original forms reappear in equal numbers and with all their peculiarities. If the influence of the germ cell on the pollen cell were only external, if it were given only the role of a nurse, then the result of every artificial fertilization could be only that the developed hybrid was, ex- was exclusively like the pollen plant or was very similar to it. In no manner have experiments until now confirmed that. Fundamental evidence for the complete union of the contents of both cells lies in the universally confirmed experience that it is unimportant for the form of the hybrid which of the original forms was the seed or the pollen plant. A few years later, after Mendel published his 1866 classical paper, he annotated his copy of, the Dar- of Darwin's variation of animals and plants under domestication, in which Darwin had suggested that fertilization of a single germ cell requires more than one pollen grain. He annotated that, and he wrote down his annotations in a letter to um, fellow scientist Carl von Nageli. And he says to Carl von Nageli, I used Mirabilis jalapa, and that's the plant you can see here, it's a four o'clock plant. I used Mirabilis jalapa for an experimental plant, as Norda, whose work Darwin was commenting on, had done. The result of my experiment, however, is completely different. From fertilization with single pollen grains... I obtained 18 well-developed seeds, and from these, an equal number of plants, of which 10 are already in bloom. According to Noda, at least three pollen grains are needed. So the killer experiment that Mendel conducted on Mirabilis was on account of its very large pollen grains. And the experiment was to pollinate with two pollen grains, each from a variety with different flower color, a double-mixed pollination. This was a really good experimental design that revealed Men- Mendel's clarity of thinking. He realized that experiments with a single pollen grain would only show that a single pollen grain was sufficient for fertilization. But he needed to show that two can't both be involved. Only one fertilizes the egg. Later, of course, the microscopist confirmed the concept that two gametes unite at fertilization to form a zygote. But only very rarely is Mendel credited with his experimental confirmation of this or the fact that he viewed this experiment as one of his most important achievements. So Mendel um, also worked on the yellow-green pea seed colour characteristic first explored by Goss. And he confirmed that yellow is dominant to green and that both kinds reappear in the second generation after crossing. But again, he counted his peas. And out of 8,000 odd plants, plants, 6,022 were yellow and 2,001 were green. Again, a close approximation to three quarters to one quarter or three to one. Mendel confirmed Goss's observation that the green peas bred true, but he went much further. Mendel realised that not all the yellow pods were the same. He found that of 519 yellow pods, 166 bred true, whereas 353 did not instead giving yellow and green seeds in the same 3 to 1 ratio as in the previous generation. So Mendel figured that the 166 to 353 was a close fit with one-thirds to two-thirds of the total. So in other words, the F2 ratio of 3 dominant to 1 recessive was really a ratio of 1 pure breeding dominant to 2 impure dominant to 1 recessive, which always breeds true. He pursued these plants for several generations and showed that the pure breeding types always remained pure breeding and the impure breeding ones gave the same 1 to 2 to 1 ratio in each subsequent generation. Now Mendel was very cautious about his data and he went on to repeat his experiments with a total of seven different character differences. One character is always dominant to its alternative and the second generation always gave a 3 to 1 ratio which on closer inspection turned out to be a disguised 1 to 2 to 1 ratio. So these were the seven characteristics he worked on. He very deliberately focused on traits that differed in an all-or-nothing manner, round wrinkled, yellow green, and so on. And he was also sensible to focus on seeds where possible, because this saved time. He didn't need to grow the plants to see the phenotype. And of course, he could self or cross at will. He also well understood the potential confounding variable of the pea weevil, which he'd worked on in Vienna, And the pea weevil could have been responsible for insect pollination. So Mendel compared results obtained outside with those in his controlled environment of his greenhouse. So it's very easy to detect all the nuggets of outstanding experimental design in Mendel's work. We don't know to what extent he chose these traits for their clear dominance-recessive relationships Um, after extensive research or whether he simply got lucky with the single gene traits. Perhaps this seems unlikely, and it's also true that we know that Mendel was spending two or three years in preliminary experiments before he embarked on his main schemes. The seven characteristics he chose have often been the subject of speculation themselves. Indeed, Bateson himself, the co-founder of the Genetics Society, he wrote... It's very unlikely that Mendel could have had seven pairs of varieties such that the members of each pair differed from each other in only one considerable character. But this was debunked by Fisher, who wrote, there can, I believe, be no doubt whatever, that his report is to be taken entirely literally and that his experiments were carried out in just the way and in much the order that they, have, that they are recounted. Been extensively, this has been extensively researched by Fairbanks Um, and Ritting in 2001 who examined the published characteristics of 19th century pea varieties and concluded that the nature of variation in pea varieties, both old and modern, facilitates rather than prevents the construction of monohybrid experiments. And furthermore, that Mendel's account describes a well-conceived experimental design that would not have been difficult for him to perform. We know that Mendel was performing preliminary experiments in 1853 and 1854, as I said, when he was trying to keep his head down um, as the zealots were investigating the monastery. he's probably spent, thought he, time spent in the greenhouse is time well spent. And Mendel was worrying about his, his teaching exams as well. Um, he was, But he was a very good experimentalist. So how did he interpret his ratios? Published his classic paper in 1866, and in this he builds a hypothesis to account for his data Um, in which he used symbols for his traits. So this was a great innovation at the time. He used capital letter for the dominant trait, big Y, for example, and the the lowercase letter for the recessive character, little y, for example. So it's clear from this that he was thinking about factors or determinants responsible for the manifestation of the character rather than the substances themselves. So this is really, really crucial. His characters weren't transmitted directly from generation to generation, Um, So Mendel understood that he was measuring the movement of information pertaining to the traits, not the substance of the traits themselves. So if big Y denotes the particle that determines yellow seeds um, and little a green, then the parents, big Y, little y, give rise to offspring, big Y, little y. Yellow, because this character is dominant. In Mendel's translated words, the expression of... um, big A plus two big A little a plus little a, i.e. the one to two to one ratio, showed the developmental series for the progeny of big A little a hybrids. Now, of course, we'd say big A big A plus big A little a plus little a little a. And that's what all the textbooks show when they talk about Mendel's work. But actually, Mendel couldn't possibly have known that the true breeding plants have a pair of, of factors. But of course, that doesn't matter at all for his logic. He went on to examine dihybrid crosses, so he crossed round yellow with wrinkle green, and he found all round yellow in the F1, and upon selfing those, he found the 93 to 3 to 1 ratio in F2. So further crossing then enabled him to establish whether these were constant or variable and thus designate the correct symbols. So what Mendel found then was that there's a three-term developmental series Um, for the progeny of hybrids with a single trait, big A plus big A, little A, plus little A. But for the dihybrid crosses, he needed a nine-term series to describe the progeny of the dihybrids. So big A, big B, big A, little B, little A, big B, little A, little B, constant for both traits. Two lots where there's variable for one but not for the other, follow the logic, and four Um, Big A, little A, big B, little B, variable for both. So twice as many members in each of the second categories, where you're variable for one, and four times as many in the third category, variable for both. So Mendel realized that the dihybrid developmental series is actually produced by multiplying two monohybrid developmental series together, one for each trait. And I think perhaps it was, thanks to Mendel's enthusiastic study of physics, that had introduced him to the discipline of some of the mathematical concepts that turned out to be so important in this interpretation. So like this combinatorial analysis that we've just been through here. So Mendel then went on with trihybrids, concluding that the progeny of trihybrids um, uh, represent the terms of a combination series in which the developmental series for each pair are combined. Um, a result that is only possible in the light of this conclusion that he made. The behaviour of each pair of differing characters in hybrid association is independent of other differences between the two original parental plants. So Mendel realised that if N represents the number of traits, then 3 to the N represents the number of classes in the combination series, and 2 to the N, the number of classes that remain constant. So there's a huge amount of variation possible, which he must have thought was amazing. And it was 50 years later, of course, that Fisher published his great work, The Correlation Between Relatives on the Supposition of Mendelian Inheritance. So what Fisher did crucially in this paper was to show by elaborate mathematics that continuous variation could be the result of the action of many discrete determinants. And so Mendelian genetics was in fact completely consistent with the idea of evolution-driven by natural selection. But Mendel had seen that with his, with his crosses. So from all of this, then, Mendel realized that pollen and germ cells, the gametes, um, from a big A, little A hybrid, contained either big A or little A, never both. Of course, that's not the representation that Mendel would have given them, but that's one that's familiar to us. And that germ cells carrying big A were as equally likely to be fertilised by pollen carrying big A or little a, with both types being produced in equal numbers. In other words, fertilisation was random between germ cells and pollen cells, or egg cells and sperm cells for animals, regardless of what factors they carried. So this later became known as the law of equal segregation. That's the only possible way to get big A plus two big A little a plus little a, because four types of fertilization are possible. Big A with big A, big A with little A, little A with big A, and little A with little A. So this concept simply expands out when more characters are considered. So the implication here is that different traits are controlled by different elements, but the elements are all transmitted by an identical mechanism. Constancy at the mechanistic level begets huge variety at the level of the organism. As Mendel put it, The distinctive characters of two plants can ultimately rest only on differences in the nature and grouping of the elements that are present in their foundational cells in living interaction. I think this is an absolute forerunner of the one-gene, one-enzyme hypothesis that was later discovered by and confirmed by Beadle and Tatum. So Mendel's paper was first translated into English, was commissioned by Bateson for the Royal Horticultural Society. So another really nice link to the RHS and the reason why we're here today. And it appeared in the Society's Journal in 1901, next to an advertisement for Carter's grass seeds as used at Lords and the Oval and other leading county cricket grounds. We often talk about exceptions to Mendel's law as something that came later, that Mendel's laws were somehow oversimplistic, that he missed stuff. But this is also not really true. For example, Mendel certainly found exceptions to his rule of dominance. Mendel wrote, The experiments conducted with ornamental plants in past years already produced evidence that hybrids as a rule do not represent the precise intermediate form between the original parents. With individual characteristics that are particularly noticeable, like those related to the form and size of the leaves and to the pubescence of the individual parts, the intermediate form is in fact almost always apparent. In other cases, however, one of the two original parental characters possesses such an overwhelming dominance that it's difficult or quite impossible to find the other in the hybrid. So he absolutely saw semi-dominance and co-dominance. The biggest Mendelian controversy is the accusation that Mendel falsified data to more closely fit his hypothesis. So Weldon wrote to Pearson in 1901, after applying Pearson's newly developed chi-squared test to Mendel's data, that Mendel had cooked his figures, but that he was substantially right. Fisher famously said in a lecture in 1911 that it may just have been luck or it may be that the worthy German abbot, in his ignorance of probable error, unconsciously placed doubtful plants on the side, which favoured his hypothesis. And later wrote in 1936, the data of most, if not all, of the experiments have been falsified so as to agree closely with Mendel's expectations. Although, to be fair, it's, it's thought that um, Fisher did presume that it was an assistant who had done this in his desire to please mendel rather than mendel himself fisher does definitely acknowledge that mendel's paper represents experimental research conclusive in their results faultlessly lucid in presentation and vital to the understanding not of one problem of current interest but of many Many analyses of the so-called Mendel-Fisher controversy have been undertaken based on statistical, botanical and historical considerations and the, ju- the jury is largely still out. But one of the most definitive accounts, Alan Franklin in 2008, concludes the experiments that had initially triggered Fisher's suspicions can be explained without any fraud, but the issue of the too-good-to-be-true aspect of Mendel's data found by Fisher still stands we don't know the answer to that. Mendel published his work in 1866, two years before Darwin published his pangenesis theory of blending inheritance based on his gemmules made from all parts of the organism. And it seems extraordinary in these days of instant communication that Darwin never came into contact with this work. What would have happened if Darwin and Mendel had met and discussed Mendel's results? It's certainly true that Mendel was well acquainted with ideas of biological evolution, from Unger, for example, long before he learned of Darwin. He likely learned of Darwin in um, 1863, the final year of his pea experiments, because in 1863 he obtained a German translation of Origin of Species, which he annotated extensively. And those annotations have been researched and published by Fairbanks and others. So the evidence suggests that Mendel was very interested in Darwin's writings and their relevance to his work, but that he didn't become an ardent promoter. Maybe he was thinking about trouble in the monastery and Pope Pius IX. On the other hand, there is no evidence that Darwin knew anything about Mendel. There's a story, largely mythological, about the uncut paper, that Darwin had an uncut copy of, of Mendel's paper in his study, because in those days you had to physically cut the pages in order to read um, the paper. But that seems to be a myth, although it is true that Darwin did own a book that made reference to Mendel, but that the relevant pages in that book are uncut. So that's probably where that story comes from. So after 1866, then Mendel continued his work using many different species, some really complex and hard to interpret, and fell down various rabbit holes with them. But notably, experiments in Mattiola or stocks shown here, and Zia and Mirabilis, they behaved exactly like, like the peas. Mendel became abbot in 1868 on the death of Knapp, but he continued his research for some time, and this was mostly revealed in letters to fellow scientist Carl von Nageli. But Mendel gradually gets sucked into more and more monastery administration, like tax affairs. It's odd that he only published his later work in this letter form, possible that he prepared papers that were burnt after his death in a general clear out and there's even been speculation that he burned them himself because he was bitter about being attacked by the religious zealots or his monastery being under attack it's also very revealing that despite being the recipient of extensive scientific correspondence from Mendel Nagali failed to mention Mendel's work in his own magnum opus maybe he didn't get it or maybe he didn't want to give credit to others Mendel died in 1884 at the age of 62, young by today's standards. His paper remains a fine example of brilliant experimental design, data-led hypothesis testing, and the development of of a theory of heredity that's essentially unchanged today. That this work was completely ignored for three decades makes it all the more remarkable. So what are the modern-day exceptions to Mendel's law? Well, linkage is a pretty important one. Mendel's work and the discipline of his crosses paved the way for Morgan to find this in his fruit fly crosses. It's bizarre that Thomas Hunt Morgan, shown here, was born in Kentucky in 1866, the same year that Mendel published his work. So Morgan's particular genius was to spot inconsistencies in Mendel's second law, the law of independent assortment. And these exceptions occur when hereditary hereditary factors are segregated together. And he came up with the concept of linkage and the chromosome theory to explain them. But then even more than that, Morgan spotted inconsistencies in his own inconsistencies and came up with the idea of recombination, which led to mapping. Bateson in particular found the chromosome theory to be really tricky to accept, finding the idea that particles of chromatin or of any substance, however complex, could influence ratios and transmission patterns inconceivable. He preferred the reduplication view of linkage, based on the idea that factors didn't necessarily segregate simultaneously during cell division. But it was Becky Saunders, Bateson's lifelong collaborator and co-founder of the Genetic Society, who embraced the idea of Morgan and the cell biologists who could actually see reductional division during gamete formation. And she gave it much airtime during her 1920 presidential address at the British Association for the Advancement of Science, now the British Science Association. She said, It must then be acknowledged that Morgan's interpretation of the cytological evidence has much in its favour. The striking parallel between the behaviour of the chromosomes and the distributional relations of Mendelian allelomorphs is obvious. The existence in Drosophila of four pairs of chromosomes and of four sets of linked characters can hardly be more coincidence, can hardly be mere coincidence. So it was Saunders who persuaded Bateson of the utter genius of this work. And two years later, in 1922, Morgan and his student Sturtevant were invited and celebrated at the 11th meeting of the Genetical Society. Other exceptions to Mendel's laws include cytoplasmic inheritance of organelle genomes, sex chromosome evolution, gene conversion, meiotic drives, epigenetics. Exceptions to any rule drive discovery in science. Um, And this must be behind the title of Bateson's biography by Koch and Forsdyke, Treasure Your Exceptions. Mendel's laws are simply a manifestation, after all, of the mechanism of gamete formation through meiosis and the inheritance of unlinked allelic variants present on chromosomes. So anything that doesn't do that is going to present exceptions. The exceptions give us a richer and deeper understanding of genetic mechanisms. They work with the rules rather than proving the rule, as the cliché goes. The most revealing exceptions are the big ones, the ones that challenge the underlying logic, like meiotic drives, breaking the law of equal segregation, introducing the chance for alleles to gain the system for their own ends, so modifying inheritance itself. And epigenetic phenomena, modifying the relationship between genotype and phenotype, like in genomic imprinting. Although it's true to say that, for the most part, and leaving imprinting aside, fancy epigenetic modifications of DNA sequence are simply rubbed out during gamete formation, thus preserving the sanctity of inheritance. Of course, the exceptions to this are really fascinating and could take us right back to Darwin's pangenesis. Wherever this next takes us, it's clear that none of this would have been possible without Mendel. And not just this, of course, our understanding of heredity. The application of Mendel's genetic methodology to mutants has blown apart much of biology and revealed a myriad of molecular mechanisms from cell division to organismal behavior. Mendel took very much the modern empirical approach to science rather than the philosophical, logical approach taken so successfully by Darwin. Mendel's work was certainly not descriptive in the often negative, somewhat dismissive parlance loved by modern journal editors. Who, out of all the scientists involved in work on evolution and heredity, was unique? I would argue that it was Mendel. Several scientists were homing in on natural selection at the time of Darwin's publication. Wallace, for one. Unger, I would argue. What about the structure of DNA? Several scientists were converging on this for certain, but Mendel's work was utterly unique and required new imaginings, like Newton and Einstein and Morgan, perhaps. What gifts Mendel bestowed upon humanity, and what a privilege it is to be a geneticist. Thank you. And I'd just like to um, acknowledge the Genetic Society for putting on this great celebration in this wonderful place, and to also include um, another picture of Jonathan together with Wendy Bickmore wearing her pea dress um, at, at Chelsea. So, thank you.
0: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?